Okay, now I'm not normally going to do this. I better say that right at the start. I am not normally going to preach a one-off sermon uh, at a baptism. I'm not normally going to do this, but I did think it was uh, appropriate uh, this morning. You see, it's not every day, is it, that a baby is named Boaz. Is it like if you and I were to scan through the uh, list of the top 100 boys' names in the United Kingdom in 2017... Uh, I doubt that Boaz is going to be anywhere near the top. It's quite an unusual name, so I could not resist. Couldn't resist. Today what I want us to do is to consider Ruth chapter 2 and to try and answer the question why it might be that Gabriel and Sodria have named their little baby boy who is soon to be baptized, why they have named him in the way that they have named him. And this is a wonderful story. It is a f- just a brilliant story. So what I want us to do this morning is to just jump straight in uh, to the biblical text. And the first thing that I want us to consider together is the predicament that we see. The predicament that we're dealing with in Ruth chapter 2. Now, I, as I look around the church uh, this morning, here's my guess. My guess is that most of you probably know the story of Ruth. Is that right? You probably do know, you've probably heard the story of Ruth. Yes, it's kind of, it's a go-to place in Bible studies, isn't it? And women's conferences. We even, if you're visiting London City Presbyterian Church, not all that long ago, we as a congregation went through this book. So it's familiar to most of us. But still, what do we have to do? We've got to try and pinpoint exactly where we are in this very well-known story. So did you see, when Johnny read it out, do you see what's happening? Do you see where we are? Naomi. Who You could make a good case for being the main character in this book. She's been through the ringer, hasn't she? Like, first of all, she has had to leave her hometown because of this just awful famine. Then what has happened to this woman? In the foreign land, not only has her husband died, but her two boys have passed away as well. And then do you see the picture you've got when you come into this portion of scripture we read here? You've got Naomi trudging back to her hometown of Bethlehem. And she is armed only with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. So are you with me when I say to you, this is a pretty miserable picture, isn't it? It's pretty, pretty awful. Do you know what we've got to say? It only gets worse. Because do this with me if you've got your Bible open. Have a look at verse 2. And what is it that Ruth, the daughter-in-law, asks Naomi? Do you see what she wants to do? Ruth wants to glean. And do you know what gleaning is? Gleaning is going out into the field, following behind harvesters, and picking up dirty scraps of food that the harvesters leave behind. Do you see what that adds to the picture? See these women, Ruth and Naomi? They're struggling to eat. Like they don't have any... Food, like, do do you see the sense of it? Like, they are almost unable to survive. Things could not be any more urgent. It couldn't be any worse for these women. And so what's the question that you and I are asking at this point in Ruth? We're asking, is there any hope for these people? Like, these are vulnerable women in the ancient world. Is there any, are they just going to succumb to an early death? Succumb to starvation? Or is there any, any hope at all for Naomi? And if you know the story, what's the answer? (laughs) Hallelujah. Yes. 
praise God, there is hope. And I think this is the key to everything today. I think it's also the key to why Gabriel and Sodrea are naming their little baby boy the way they are. Because what's the hope? What God done? God had in his grace and goodness enshrined into law help for vulnerable women like this. That's what our God had done. He had established in law what were called, ready for it, kinsmen redeemers. Now, if you are part of London City Presbyterian Church, we dealt with this in the sermon series. Do you remember what a kinsman redeemer was? You heard of it? You remember it? A kinsman redeemer? It's when women in an extended family, when they were destitute or they became bereaved, what had to happen? A male relative had the responsibility, or the privilege, you could even argue, to enter the fray and to adopt those people as his own. You see it, the kinsman redeemer. What did he have to do? He had to provide lineage. He had to provide a future. He had to provide security for these vulnerable women. And so, I wonder, do you feel what you're supposed to feel at this point in the book of Ruth. Because we know what a kinsman redeemer was all about. Now look at verse 1. We know there's a responsibility for relatives for vulnerable women. Look at verse 1. Now Naomi had what? A relative of her husband's. And then verse 3, look at it. Ruth just so happens to be brought to that very relative's field. Like, do you feel it? Do you sense it? What we ask him, we're asking, could this be the hope? Could this be what's happening? Could there be hope and help for these women? Could God be leading these women to a kinsman redeemer? And let me ask you this. We've got a lot to cover. So let me ask you this. How did you come into this building this morning? Like, did you enter this place with the same heart that Naomi entered into Bethlehem here. You see what I mean? Like if you, friends, if you come in here really downbeat and, and heavy laden and struggling to get by, entered into this building here at the end of your tether, well, yeah... What scripture would say to you if you're not a Christian is you've got reason for that. That all of us here entered into the world impoverished, you know, bankrupt before God. But ready for these three words? There is hope. Because what God has done for you is what he has done here. That he has made available a kinsman redeemer. Now, are you hearing those words? Are you rock bottom? Is that you this morning? End of your tether? God in his grace has made available someone who can, listen, save you from your despair. So what are you asking? Who's that? Well, that takes us on to our second point this morning. So we've seen the predicament of Naomi and Ruth. Second of all, we see here the personality the personality. Now, you, friends, you know what it's like when a couple uh, find out they're pregnant. What's, what's one of the first things they'll, they'll do? They'll go out and they'll buy a book on baby names. Isn't that usually what happens? You've maybe done this in the past. 
or certainly you've seen these sorts of books that I'm talking about, a list of baby names. It'll be a book that's got every conceivable, every imaginable name that a person could give uh, to a child. There'll be a list of all these names alongside the meaning of these names. So I've David means beloved or whatever. Now you see that idea there. That does not help us a tiny little bit when it comes to this biblical character that we're dealing with here, this man. Boaz doesn't help us because truth be told, we don't know what the name Boaz means, right? We don't know the etymology of this name. So it doesn't help us. But thankfully, friends, you and I are given an insight into this character in what you were told in verse 1. So would you have a look and see what you're told about this man? Naomi had a relative of her husband's. Now, what's the next bit? What's the word? Do you see? He was a... He's a worthy man. A worthy man. Now, see that description there, a worthy man. It's used of Gideon. In the book of Judges, a worthy man. But there, it means something different. Because Gideon really has been described as a noble warrior. And that's not what what we're dealing with here with Boaz at all. Do you see the idea? Boaz was a noble character. You see it, don't you? Who is this man before us in Ruth chapter 2? He's a man of honor. Like he's a, he's a real, he's a noble man, a man of integrity. Do you see it? A virtuous guy. Fine. So you get the idea? Boaz in the Bible, a great man. What could we add to that? Yeah, like you know the story. Like you know how he treats Ruth. What, what's the obvious thing we can say about this guy Boaz? He's a great man. What else is he? And the way he treats Ruth, he's a generous man. Isn't he? I mean, he cares for the poor. So do you see what's happening here? Like there's a picture building up for us of, of this biblical character. He is a, now remember the words, he is a great man and he is a generous man. Is there anything else? Is there anything else? Well, let me ask you this. Do you like occasions like this? Like a baptism of a little baby? Do you, do you like this? I love it. I absolutely love it. You know, the whole baby thing, I'm, I'm down it, I love it, love it. I just love the idea of of what Gabriel and Sudrea have ahead of them. Don't you? Like, I don't mean the sleepless nights. They can have that. You know, done it. Don't want it. Okay? I don't mean that. I mean the rest of it. Like, you know, the excitement that they've got ahead of them. They're, God willing, going to see little Boaz grow up. And they're going to see the first crawl. And they're going to see the first steps. There's another beautiful thing, and I'm sure the parents in here can can go with us. You know, God willing, they're going to hear Boaz's first words. Isn't that, for the parents in here, it's a marvelous moment, isn't it? You know, the little kid looks up and says, Dada, you know, or Mama, or whatever, food, <laughs> burgers. I don't know what the first word will, will be, but it's a, a marvelous thing, marvelous thing. Now get this. I think we get an incredible insight into this biblical character, Boaz, from his first recorded words in Scripture. So you have a look with me at verse 4 here. Look at his first words. So Boaz appears on the scene and he looks across at his employees, his workers, and what does he say? He says, the Lord, what great first verse, the Lord be 
with you. Now, friends, what does that tell you about Boaz? It doesn't just tell you, oh, he's a good employer. What does it tell you? This man we're dealing with here, he's a spiritual man. Isn't that what, what you see there? He's a pious man. His first words, you know, he announces in Scripture, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. This isn't just a great man. He's not just a generous man. What is he? He is a godly man. Now, I've said I love this occasion here just now. Do you understand that it's not just about babies? Do you see that this is such an important moment just now? Like in a moment or two, Boaz is going to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He will have the sign of the covenant and grace administered to him. He will be declared as a member of the covenant community of God. It is an, it's an incredibly significant moment. And what have we said when we've done this before? This is not just special for me. It's not just special for Gabriel Sidrea. It's not just special for Boaz. This is an important moment for you, the covenant community of God. You understand that this morning you are taking on responsibility before God. Responsibility where you say to God that you will care for Boaz. You will teach Boaz fundamentally as a congregation. What are you going to do? You're going to pray for little Boaz. And do you see this morning what God is giving you in his word? In these attributes of this biblical character, do you see what God is handing to you? He's giving you a prayer list. You see it? In the character, the attributes of this biblical man here, God is showing you what you should pray for this little lad that we're going to baptize in a moment or two. And what do we pray for Boaz? We pray, don't we, that he will become a great man? Don't we? A noble man, a man of virtue. Don't we pray that? We pray that this little child to be baptized, that he will become a generous man, a man who cares for vulnerable people and vulnerable women. But what more than that must we pray? Come on, what do we pray for the little lad? We pray that he becomes a godly man. Don't we pray that? We pray that he will become, he will grow up into a man who walks with, with God. You see, you are being given a prayer list as a congregation by the Almighty. Wait a minute, isn't there something else? Because are you that person that came through the door today despairing? Is that you? Are you at rock bottom? Do you see what the attributes do? They point you to hope. They point you to another. Don't they? Are you despairing? See that you're being pointed to one who is greater than all. One who is more generous than all. Someone who would give up even his life for his friends. These attributes, they point you to the godly one, don't they? That in scripture what God is doing today for you, for hope and help, he is pointing you to the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see predicament. Ah, but we see a personality. Third thing here. We see the provision. The provision. Let's here work out the story. Because uh, I've just made this pretty bold statement that this guy Boaz in the Bible is generous. He's generous. How is he generous? Now this guy here, we know he's a good guy. What does he actually do for Ruth? 
I think you can probably break that up into three, three things. This is the first one. Ready for it? What does Boaz do? Boaz gives Ruth protection. And even as I say those words, what comes to mind for you? That Boaz protects this vulnerable woman. Like if you've switched on your TV this week, switched on your computer, checked any media outlet, what's been the main story? Main story has been the Harvey Weinstein story. Hasn't it? Everyone in here has heard this. They were blue in the face. Haven't we? How women, in certain circumstances, they are vulnerable. And they are preyed upon by evil, wicked men. Now you've got to understand in this story, it's exactly the same. Like numerous times in this account, it is inferred that women who were gleaning were exposed. You understand, time and time again, it shows that women who were gleaning out in the fields, that they were vulnerable to attack and assault by men. Do you see it? So what does Boaz do? What is the beautiful thing that Boaz does? Not only does he say to Ruth, you stay here. You work with these people. What does he say to his men? He says, don't you go near her. Like, don't you lay one finger upon this girl. Like, he is the antithesis of Harvey Weinstein, isn't he? He is a man who protects, protects vulnerable women. Okay? I said three things. Second thing that Boaz does is he gives Ruth acceptance. I I wonder if you noticed this in the text when Johnny read it out. I had to read through this a few times before I got it, but it's here. There's something in the way that this text is written to emphasize that Ruth was an outcast. I wonder if you got it. All throughout chapter 2, more often than not, Ruth is not called Ruth. Did you notice like time and time, in fact, more often than not, throughout this chapter, Ruth is either called the Moabitess, or if she's given her name, she's called Ruth the Moabitess. Now, do you see what the author is doing there for you? The author is underlining the fact that she's a foreigner. Like she's, she's a stranger. Like she's an alien. She's an outcast. And therefore, she's marginalized. She could not be any more marginalized in a community such as this. And yet, what does Boaz do for her? She's a foreigner. What does he do? He says, you come here. She's a refugee, friends. A refugee. And he says, please come and work in my field. Then what does he do? Look at verse 14. She's beautiful. Think about the cultural situation. Look at verse 14. She's a foreigner. And he invites her to his table. Like unheard of. Dramatic. It's ridiculous almost that he would invite a stranger, an alien, to dine with him. In that cultural context, he gives her acceptance. And then the third of these is this, and it's the most special of the law. Listen, friend. Boaz gives Ruth true satisfaction. See, I wonder if this has ever been the case for you. I tell you this, it will not have been the case for you in London or the United Kingdom. But have you ever, perhaps some of our Brazilian contingent who are 
here for the baptism this morning will understand this. Have you ever worked outside all day long in the baking heat? Have you ever had to do that? You definitely will never have had to do that in the United Kingdom. Have you ever had that slaving away outside all day long in the baking heat? I've done it once, and as a Scottish Highlander, I withered. I melted. My car broke down when we were right in the south of France, and there was a heat wave, and it was 42 degrees, and I was trying to fix the car, and I almost think I began to melt. You understand, though, it's the same for Ruth. This is May, June... This is harvest time in Israel. Like the Middle Eastern sun beating down on her as she is out in the fields all day long. Can you imagine the misery for this? And what does Boaz say to her? He says, you want water? You want water? You have all the water you can have. And then you think of that lovely table scene again in verse 14. What does he say to her? Remember... She's a starving girl. And what does he give her? He gives her food. And it is emphasized in the text a couple of times that he gives her more food. That she can even deal with more food that she can even eat. Do you see the generosity of this man? Do you see what he's providing? He gives her protection, acceptance. He he gives her satisfaction. Now friends, what is the application for us in here this morning? Does this apply to you, to me Well, friends, would you agree with us that the great problem of our society in London is that people out there do not understand the enormity of what God is holding out in the gospel? What about the people in your life? What do they think Christianity is about? Do you know what my friends think Christianity is about? They think it's about jumble sales. They do. Like they think it's about like trinkets and angels. No matter what I say to them, they still think it's about women's guilds and it's about a sense of community spirit and that sort of thing. Friend, are you in here with similar thoughts of Christianity? Like do you see what Almighty God is doing today? He is pointing you to the redeeming work of Christ. Do you see the scale? Like just the enormity of what God offers you today in the gospel. You're offered this morning protection from God. I mean, think of that. Like forever and ever protected, shielded from the powers of evil and the forces of wickedness. This morning you are offered, listen to the word, acceptance from God. Belonging. Like adoption into the divine family. That's been held out to you. And what's the last one? What was that last one? True spiritual satisfaction. I mean, isn't that a thought for you this morning? You know that restless, hungry feeling? Our hearts, that filled forevermore. Listen, a peace and a contentment that is beyond all description. That's what the Almighty Holds out to you this morning. What are you going to do? Really? Your pride's going to get in the way. Is that it? You're going to reject an offer like that? No. Surely this morning you, you see what's an offer. You bow to Christ Jesus. You accept the invitation. And you come. And you dine. And you dine with the Redeemer. And then the last thing with which we close, we see the pleasure, the pleasure. Do you know, 
truth be told, my life as a preacher is full of regret. I was thinking about that this week. It's full of regret. Because no sooner do I finish a sermon season, a book of the Bible, than I wish I could go back and redo it. And do, I finish a sermon series in a book and I immediately think, I wish I'd emphasized that theme of the book more than I'd done, or I wish I'd emphasized and brought more attention to that detail, life full of regret. That is certainly the case with our sermon series in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Wish I could go back. Maybe we will one day. Maybe we will. See, I wish... That we had emphasized a particular theme in this book more than we did. And it's the theme of transformation. If you know the story of Ruth, do you see what I mean? How does the book begin, friends? It begins with the severing of a marriage in the death of Elimelech. How does the book end? It ends with the beginning of a new marriage with Ruth and Boaz. You see transformation. How does the book begin? It begins with this great question mark over lineage. Oh, Naomi's sons have died. What is going to happen to the family line? How does the book end? With the birth of a little baby boy. How does the book? You see transformation. How does the book begin? It begins with misery and mourning and grief. How does the book end? It ends with rejoicing and praising of God. Transformation. How does the book begin? It begins in Moab. It ends in Bethlehem. You see, transformation. Now you see that glorious theme. It is held in microcosm in the verses that you have in front of you just now. See, how does this portion begin? We see Naomi, almost unable to walk, so impoverished is she. And what was the the picture at the end of the chapter? I mean, Ruth comes home with more food than anyone knows what to do with. She's got an ephah of grain. Nobody knows what to do with it so much. How does it begin? Do you know the bitterness of Naomi, don't you? Remember what she says to her friends, don't call me. Naomi, call me. Mara. So bitter. And at the end of this section, do you see she's delighting? Like she is rejoicing. Now my question for you is this. See all of the transformation in the book of, of Ruth. How does it happen? All of that transformation, how does it come about? You see, do you? It all comes through an encounter with the Redeemer. I look around the room this morning, and I do not know a few of you in here today. Like some of you are here because of the baptism of Boaz, aren't you? Which is a lovely thing. Some of you are here because maybe you're just passing through London for a few hours I don't know you. I know this. That if you have not experienced it thus far in your life, that today, at this very hour, you can experience transformation and you can experience change. How can I say that? Well, you consider what Christ has done for his people. What has Christ done for you if you're a Christian in here? What has he done for us? We were spiritually bereft, weren't we? We were impoverished. We were bankrupt. And we looked up. 
What do we see from Bethlehem? Behold, a Redeemer. And what sort of Redeemer has appeared for you, Christian friend? That's right, a close male relative. That's how the book of Hebrews portrays it. That's what the book of Hebrews says about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a Redeemer who is one like us, a man like us. And what has this Redeemer done for his people? What has he done for us? Though it cost him everything. Though it cost him his life. What has he done? He has acted on our behalf. And he has set his people free. We have been adopted into a new family. Do you know what we have? An inheritance. We have security. We have a future. An inheritance that will never spoil, perish or fade. That's before us. And so you see, friend, if you've not experienced it, in Christ Jesus, in that Redeemer, there can be transformation and change for you today. And if you hold that in firm sight, maybe this morning you get it. Maybe you get why Gabriel and Sidreya have named their little boy the way they have. It's not just that it's a cool name. It's not just that it's an unusual name. Why have they named him like this? It's because the biblical Boaz points people to the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that this little baby who is about to be baptized, may he grow up in an experience of grace. But may it also be that every single one of us in here just now, that we do as Ruth does in this chapter, may we fall to the ground before the kinsman redeemer, our saviour from sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.